the power required to actually move the speed over a full-scale tunnel. Windshear in North Carolina is one of the best full-scale tunnels in the world. I think it does 160 mile an hour rolling road, but it has to have its own power station. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by Paul Lucas from Verus Engineering. Verus are pretty well known for the range of aerodynamic components that they offer off the shelf for a range of popular production cars. They also offer in-house engineering services that they consult with other companies, and they also are involved in bespoke one-off designs for aerodynamic and bodywork components. For example, they were instrumental in the development of the Hoonapig, which we've already discussed previously in episodes of this podcast. With Paul, we talk about a wide range of topics. We find out how he got involved in the aerodynamics industry, how he got his start with an engineering degree. We talk about the formation of Verus and how they've developed over the seven or eight years they've been in business, how they choose a vehicle to focus on, and for example, how they can do a better job of producing downforce than the likes of Porsche on their brand new 992 GT3. This conversation is heavy on dynamics but we also cover other engineering topics such as FEA, how the modern scanning equipment has really transformed the industry that Verus work in and how products are then validated for use in the real world. This is really interesting for me personally in terms of the aerodynamic validation. Obviously the holy grail is a wind tunnel but wind tunnels are incredibly expensive. Here in New Zealand we've got no option, there are no wind tunnels. So we talked to Paul about how they're using the likes of shock pots and laser ride height sensors to help validate real world downforce numbers out on the road or at the racetrack. Before we jump into our chat with Paul, if you are new to the Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We offer a range of online video based training courses Courses that cover topics such as engine tuning, engine building, fabrication, 3D modeling and design just to name a few. Once you purchase any of these courses they're yours for life, you can watch them wherever you like, whenever you like and as a podcast listener you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 that will get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. We'll put a link to that coupon code in the show notes as well as a link to our course. All right, enough of our introduction, let's get into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thanks for joining us today. And as we do with all of our guests, so I really want to just get started by learning a little bit about your background specifically for a start, how you got interested in the automotive industry. I guess probably like most people in the field start off loving cars, anything that goes fast as a little kid, turned 16, and then that kind of shot into high gear, got my first car started tinkering with it. It was a first generation DSM. I think a lot of people my age probably remember working on a lot of those cars. So that's what kind of started my love into cars. Always was into science. So I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I went to engineering school, had an idea of kind of what I thought I wanted to do, did Formula SAE. And then in my third year, took fluids. And that's what kind of got my love into aerodynamics and fluid mechanics, which then I kind of stemmed into that with Formula SAE, dove into it, started learning different codes like open foam. And yeah, I worked with one of my professors who was a 
ex-Formula One engineer. I didn't work any aerodynamics with him, but I was able to like pick his brain, learn a lot. He ran our Formula SAE program for a while. So I got an internship during school at Don Schumacher Racing, where I actually did chassis work, though, because I also worked on the chassis side of things for Formula SAE. So I did chassis development for Don Schumacher Racing for about a year or so. And then I got another internship at CNR Racing, which now is PWR North America. So I worked there as an intern. And then when I graduated, I went working for them full time. So I was basically designing heat exchangers for a year and a half to two years. And that's where I first met Eric, also part of Varus. And then from there, I moved to Chicago. My wife got into school, needed to move, moved to Chicago and got a job at AMS Performance. I worked there for almost four years, started as a regular engineer, moved up to engineering manager. So about my last year, I was the engineering manager there. When I left, that's when Eric and I started Varus, but back then it was Velox Motorsports. Name got changed because when you don't know what you're doing and you start a business initially, you don't trademark the name. You go to trademark the name, then somebody already trademarked it. So we had to go through the name change, which is why it's Varus Engineering. So I'll stop you there. There's a few things I want to just dig into uh, that you've already mentioned. So before we go too deep and and sort of get into what Varus is. So coming back to engineering, I mean, obviously it's it's a very wide field. So can you tell us how an engineering degree works? Because you sort of mentioned that as you were going through that, you decided you wanted to focus on on fluids. So yeah, how does, how does that all work? Most engineering programs, I would say between, unless you're doing something oddball, more like chemical engineering or something, but like a lot of them on mechanical aerospace, first two years, you take the basic math and physics and all of that kind of stuff. So you have like four calculus classes, you have two physics classes, you have some of the base classes, like regular engineering classes that most people have. And then after that, like if you're a mechanical engineer, you go to a path, aerospace, you go down to a path. So I was mechanical. So like went down the mechanical path, but a lot of people like, so aerospace and mechanical, very, very similar aerospace, depending on the programs you could be doing with space stuff or like aircraft things. Mechanical is kind of like the do it all. You can almost do whatever you want. doesn't really matter. I think mechanical is a really good route to go for most people. And then you do a lot of your mechanical classes. So you do statics dynamics, you, do, you touch into some material science, you do fluids, you do heat transfer, thermodynamics, all of those kind of things. Okay. But at that point, you sort of started building this passion with the Formula SAE as well for the aerodynamic side of fluids, because essentially from an aerodynamic standpoint, air is a fluid. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it, air is treated no differently than water in real, in like equations you have you have ways to like you can use like a water tunnel to simulate a car. Sure. You just do Reynolds what's called Reynolds scaling. Okay. To change it. It's not perfect on everything, but it's pretty close. All right. All right. But yeah, so like mechanical you can go down a bunch of different paths and I really like the fluids path, so that's kind of what I focused on. Now just uh, focusing on one of the the jobs you mentioned there, uh, AMS performance Pretty big name in the industry, so I'm expecting that most people listening will have heard of AMS. And mm-hmm. what I like about AMS is that they're developing their own product range. They're not just a sort of a performance workshop where you bring your car in and they'll bolt on whatever parts you, you bring in and tune it for you. They're actually making full staged packages for a lot of the popular tuner market cars. So is that 
as an engineering head, I think you mentioned you were there or head of the engineering department. Is is that sort of what you're in charge of, basically that that development process for AMS? Yeah. So when I was there, I obviously started off as just a normal engineer, and that was so they have kind of two different areas where like at like say an OEM automotive would be all considered an engineering, but they have the tuning area and then they have the engineering area. So the engineering area was like component design and manufacturing. And then they had a separate thing with the tuning. Right. So I wasn't involved in any of the tuning aspect. Sure. Sure. And you had a team under you that were developing the the products and kits. Yep. Okay. So what was the sort of decision to to jump and and try your own thing with Verus or what, whatever you you said it was at the time the uh, non trademark name? Yes. Uh, um, so I wanted to move back to Indianapolis because my wife was done with school. We wanted to go back to where we were from, and I wanted to do something kind of very specific that you can't just go out and pick from a handful of jobs to kind of do that, and so. You don't really have any other choice if that's what you want to do. Sure. So that's kind of what started that. It must be a, a fairly bold move, though, to to take that risk and and start something from scratch and and hope that there is going to be a, a market for it. Was it a scary time? Talk us through the mindset when when you took that jump, that leap of faith. Yeah. So you just have to be prepared not to be making any money for a little while. So. Uh, Hopefully you set yourself up so you could kind of live for a little bit of while without like making any real money, which, yeah, it's it's a leap of faith. But at the end of the day, like if you have that money set aside and you can do it, you can make that jump without being at too much of a risk. Because honestly, as an engineer, like if it doesn't work out, you can get a job. Like even in the middle of the recession, if a kid wants to go to school and get a degree where you can get a good paying job, become an engineer. There's jobs everywhere. Yeah. And so if it didn't work out, there's always a plan B, C, and D. So I, I, I didn't view it as much of a risk. It was just trying something. Yeah, I, I guess that, that is a good point. If you've got that that fallback degree, yeah, it, it's probably not going to be too hard if, if things really don't work out. But of course, they have. So seven years mm-hmm. on, maybe give us the, the sort of 30,000 foot view of what Verus Engineering is today. So basically... I would say we're a component designer. We make parts, specifically aero parts, but we make other stuff too, but we focus on aero parts. Main reason is we focus on things that aren't EPA regulated. That was the big focus on not avoiding all of that kind of nightmare that people are dealing with on that kind of thing. So we um, like, we'll do some engine components, but only stuff that's not regulated. So, but we focus on aerodynamic components. So splitters, wings, diffusers, items like that. We design, manufacture, test, develop, sell them, ship them, okay. everything. Just coming back to that, that EPA comment, because it's something we haven't really dived into detail in on the podcast, but I mean, it, it is becoming an increasingly significant concern, uh, particularly in the US, of course, with the tuning industry and anything that you do that changes or creates, changes the emissions or creates more emissions is is becoming, coming under more and more scrutiny. So it, it, it is concerning. So when you say that if you're doing outwork uh, you know, for, for a third party, you would stay away from manufacturing or designing any components to do with the engine that could affect engine emissions? So we'll do third party stuff. Okay. But we will not manufacture and do things ourselves. Sure. So we'll 
because we'll do some work for other companies. Um, like we do work for Fat House, who does like GT350 and GT500. So we do, we design their intake manifold and things like that. But again, that's not parts that we sell. Mm-hmm. So however they deal with that on their end, that's kind of on them. Yeah. We're just the design house for them. Un- understandable. All right. So at this point, what's the, the size of uh, the facility, number of staff, um, et cetera? Staff is still pretty small, around five, six people. Um, then we have like floating part-time people and interns and stuff like that that take up the rest of it. Okay. Now, obviously, you've, you've already mentioned that the aero components are a big element of, of what you you design and, and focus on. So we'll, we'll deal with that to, to start with. And you know, how, how initially do you decide on a platform to focus your energy on? Obviously, there's a, a lot of cars on the market and you're going to need to focus your energy on, on ones that actually have a, a market of enthusiasts that are looking for these performance upgrades. So what's the sort of philosophy around choosing that platform in the first place? So I guess I wish we had a good philosophy. <laughs> we don't. Uh, it was really just guessing and checking and hoping it worked out. And plat- like platforms that didn't work out, once we sell everything we have to sell for it, we just drop it. Okay. And then... We just hope we can make it up with the ones that work out. Like you use common sense. Like we knew the new Supra that was when it was coming out, that was probably going to be a good market. It was, is a very good market. Uh, FRS, BRZ, those markets, that's always good. That's what drove us down the Porsche route. Because if you're looking at something that's a little bit more good during say a recession, if you're looking at a company where you can sell things all the time, no matter how good or bad the economy is, the cheaper the car, People who are buying those usually have less money and get affected more by a downturn in the economy. So what is a platform that we can work on that makes sense aerodynamically that is for a higher end market that's not going to be subjected to if the market takes a turn for the negative, And that would be Porsche. Like all of those, like those guys have money. They still mod their cars and they track them. Like there's plenty of people at the local track by us. They'll buy a brand new GT3 RS. They'll just drive the crap out of it. Doesn't matter. Uh, I, I can assume there as well, it opens you up to the price point that you can be offering product at uh, simply on the basis that if you're selling to a customer that's just dropped maybe two or $300,000 on a vehicle versus someone who's dropped $30,000 on a vehicle, you know, they're not the thirty thousand dollar vehicle. They're not going to spend another thirty thousand dollars on modifications. Probably, well, I say that, but actually, that, that's that's probably not quite. I think you probably get what I'm saying, though. Is, is that a consideration yeah. there with those higher higher price point vehicle platforms? Yeah, and business wise, that would probably be like the better solution. But a lot of times, what we ended up doing is we ended up making a lot nicer parts and being able to spend more money on the R and D side. <laughs> Um, yeah. on that. And we really don't make any more money okay. <laughs> on those because of that. Cause we, you end up using a lot nicer parts. You like, like the GT three RS, for example, uses our V one X wing versus like most of the lower end cars use the UCW. Well, just manufacturing wise on our V one X is three times the cost of UCW. And so like, you can't just charge whatever you want in the Porsche market. You still have to be competitive. So we don't actually make a higher profit margin. Like we make a little bit higher profit margin, but we also sell way less of it. Sure. So it, it it's just a good way to spread out the brand. 
but I can only assume you also wouldn't be able to take that V1X wing and sell it in that lower price point market because it would just be too expensive. Yeah, uh, we sell we sell a few of them occasionally for like people who are real serious about like actually racing their car. But it's a, like it is a very expensive wing to manufacture. It's very very high end, and because of that, just very few people. It's not even on our web. Like I think it might be on the website, but it's not. You can't just buy it okay. because it's made to order. Like you can get whatever um, span you want. The mounts are customizable, which then has to get machined. So we machine that in house when it comes in. So like all of that kind of stuff is to order. So yeah. it it just doesn't lend itself to the average market. Okay. So we only offer it on the higher end stuff. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And we're going to dive further into the Porsche nine nine two. Uh, because I know you, you've recently released some products uh, for that. We'll, we'll dive into that in a moment, but I, I want to get a little deeper into the, the process uh, before we go there. Uh, in terms of once you've selected a vehicle, how, how do you go about highlighting where maybe its potential weak points are, essentially what products that you think you need to develop for it? How's that done? So a lot of times we get the car up on the lift and look at it. That's the easiest way. Uh, a lot of times after working on a certain brand of car for a while, certain manufacturers kind of have cues on what they do and what they don't do. And you kind of usually know beforehand when you're getting into it, what you can do. Like if you're, if you're working on a Ford, they're not going to put as much work on the underside of the car as say Porsche does. Yeah. So a lot of time on the new Porsches, we can't really do a diffuser, like on the, a rear diffuser. It just doesn't make sense because it's already really good and there's not enough room and no one's going to cut their car up to make a rear diffuser. So most likely we're not going to be able to do a rear diffuser on that car. So a lot of times you're looking at like what's already there, what's working and what's not working. And then you focus on what's not working. If you're working on a Porsche, everything works. You just want to try to improve it. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing there's some vehicles where the manufacturers put little to no effort into the aerodynamic performance. Whereas obviously with a model like the Porsche GT3, that is a big focus for the manufacturer. Again, we'll, we'll dive into that in more detail. So in terms of the development process for these aero components, once you've sort of decided, okay, well, we're going to make make this, this set of, of components for a vehicle, um, I'm assuming you're, you're leaning heavily here on uh, software development, CFD, to actually test and refine designs before you start actually manufacturing hard components? Yes. So our design process, so we bring a car in, we scan it. From a scan, we then solidify the model. So so when you scan something, basically that's just doing a whole bunch of points. So you, you'll hear the term like point dots or facet geometry. So facet geometry is just taking three points and making like a triangle, taking another three points and making a triangle. So it's, it's just facet geometry all the way around, which CFD can run on facet geometry if you have a good enough scan and you have it set up well. It's just, it's not the best way to do it when you're developing parts. Like if all you wanted is a baseline run on what exactly the car you have, you can do that route. But if you're looking at things to actually develop on, you need actual CAD geometry to actually work on. So we outsource that part of it. So we'll take the scan file and then we'll send it to a, a guy who we use. He turns it into solid geometry and then sends it back to us where we can actually then start working with it. 
So uh, th- this comes into a misconception, and this is definitely not the world I, I work in, but but I've sort of been involved enough with people who are doing it. I think there's a misconception that. 3D scanning produces a 3D model of of whatever it is you've scanned and then you can just work on that model in SolidWorks or Fusion 360 or or whatever it happens to be your your software of preference. But that step in between, that's what you're talking about there to take that that initial scan which is just points and actually convert it into a model. Am I picking that up correctly? Yeah, so that that is by far, I wouldn't say the hardest. It is very time consuming. If we did that in house, and I would consider myself a decent design engineer, and in CAD, we use very good software. We use Siemens NX, has very good reverse engineering capabilities. It would take me at least two weeks full time, if I'm lucky, to fully reverse engineer a car at the quality that we need it to be to do the testing. Whereas when we outsource it, that's what this person does, that's all they do. And they can get it done in about a week. And then that takes my work down to only two days after I get the car back. So usually like once we get the reverse engineered model back, it's not perfect for what exactly for what I need to help for how I set it up. Because when I put it into our CAD software, I set it up so what you can change its ride heights. You can do all kinds of different things. You can turn the wheels like you can do all kinds of stuff that I can set up very easily so I can script it. And I can spit out a whole bunch of different types of runs that we can run. So I can I can set it up for like five different ride heights, multiple different wing movements. So there's still a bunch of work on my end that still needs to be done. But the actual first engineering part, I do not do. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, obviously, anything you can do to leverage your time and, and make that whole process faster uh, is, is going to help. I mean, I, I guess that also comes down to choosing the platform. It's sounding there. Uh, that there's going to be a significant investment initially in, in time and then the outwork to actually get to a point where you've got a model that you can use. So a, a, again, sort of just factoring in a platform that is actually going to have a, a big market uh, obviously plays into this and, and is important. So once you've got that model and you've you've made these modifications that you, you've just talked about there so you can run these scripts, you know, what, what's the process there? Do you start by just getting baseline of the aerodynamic performance as delivered from the factory? Yeah. So that's, that's the first step we always do is get a, a good baseline, maybe a few different baselines. A good example is like if, if you're testing with a Porsche with a rear wing, it has adjustment. So I do baselines with all the adjustments it has so we know exactly what's going on. And then if maybe maybe a common modification to the car is a lot of people lower at 20 millimeters or something. I'm not saying that's what the Porsche, but in general, like we look at like what the average track person is doing to their car. We'll try to also do that on a baseline. So when we make parts, we know what it's doing in as many different situations as possible. Sure. Now, in terms of the the data that's being spit out by your CFD software, how well does that actually stack up? How well does that validate under real world conditions? And I know we've we've talked off uh, camera about uh, some wind tunnel testing. So you've you've done that and you're also doing some actual track testing as well under real world conditions. So I, I guess the CFD becomes a bit of a garbage in, garbage out situation Obviously, you've talked about the model and how good that needs to be, but yeah, how, how well does it actually stack up? What sort of error are you seeing when you're actually testing under real-world conditions? So it really depends on what the 
goal is. A lot of times on the CFD, the goal isn't to absolutely correlate it to the track. I want I want it to be correlated well enough that I know change X is actually doing change X in the real world. Sure. And then that our models are validated against themselves and usually as much wind tunnel as possible, less with track data. So for the track data side, I want to make sure that our changes are actually trending in the right direction, but actually correlating to track data. Honestly, I'm not good at sifting through the data enough to 100% say that it's validated or not. Track data is notoriously very hard to then nail down and really get a trend of what's going on because so much stuff is going on that nailing down that this is actually the reason that it's doing that is very difficult. But we look at the trends of stock or whatever our baseline is, then our modification, is it producing down? Like you can see if it's producing downforce, you can get an estimate of how much downforce that it's making. But I wouldn't say I could get a an accurate enough estimation based on our data acquisition to say that it's correlated perfectly. So usually for what I'm looking at on the correlation side is we've done a lot of lot of correlation on like in the wind tunnel with our rear wing. So we'd run our rear wing. We CFD tested it in the same way it was wind tunnel tested. We test different types of turbulence models, see what worked well, what didn't work well, why it didn't work well. We could do like mesh sensitivity studies with that. Then we could also correlate to, there's a lot of, by a lot, there's like two models that are, one's an Ahmed model and one's a drive air model. Drive air is a better one now, but it's it was developed in Europe. It's like a mix between like an Audi and a Volkswagen type of looking car. That's a sedan that they've built scale representation. So they have wind tunnel testing. They have CFD testing from like Audi uh, or I guess the Volkswagen group. Ford, like all the OEMs use this model and you can get, you can download all these reports on it. You can correlate yourself to this of what the big houses are doing. Okay. So if we can correlate it well to Volkswagen, we're on the right track. Sure. So that's, that's kind of how we're looking at it. And then making sure that the changes are still producing on the track. Okay. In, in terms of the wind tunnel testing, yeah, obviously anyone who follows F1 or any professional level of motorsport, that, that's sort of the holy grail and obviously wind tunnel testing is expensive. I think they sort of limit the wind tunnel testing and we've just gone through Red Bull getting a bit of a slap on the wrist and their wind tunnel testing for next season is, is reduced. You know, on that basis, obviously I'm guessing Verus doesn't quite have the budget of uh, Red Bull or Mercedes F1. Uh, do you be are you are you being very selective about when and what components you'll actually go to the trouble of of wind tunnel testing versus just CFD or track validation? Hundred percent. So wind tunnel testing would be basically only if absolutely necessary or if a customer wants to pay for it. Otherwise, the budget just doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's very expensive. It's time consuming because just not only are you paying for the time you're there, but you're because the time is expensive while you're there, you have a lot of prep work to get there and make sure you have to make all the parts. Mm. Like last time we did wind tunnel testing, we actually were in the development process of our UCW wing, which is our lower our lower priced wing. And we actually tested it in the wind tunnel 3D printed. But I probably had two weeks of time in prepping the 3D print so we could even put it in the wind tunnel and things like that to make sure it's strong enough, to make sure it's accurate enough and all of those things. 
So it's a lot of prep work to get to get it working. And so you have to be very selective of when you can do it just because of the budget. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, just dwelling on that for a moment as well, you know, from, from what I understand, F1 teams are using scaled down models of the car as well, not a, a one-to-one model for their wind tunnel testing. Which yeah, I think it's like sixty percent or something. Obviously, if you're going to that trouble as well, there's another huge layer of complexity. Uh, am I safe to assume you are actually testing the real world vehicle, and and when you are doing wind tunnel testing? Yeah, doing a scale models tiny. It would be very expensive. Absolutely. On that note, why why are professional teams using scaled down models for their testing? Where's the advantage coming that over a one to one scale? Argument is cost because the power required to actually move the speed over a full scale tunnel is very expensive. Like wind shear in North Carolina is, is one of the best full scale tunnels in the world. I think it does 160 mile an hour rolling road, but it has to have its own power station. Um, <laughs> so when you're running a scaled tunnel, I don't know if the argument in motorsports necessarily makes sense because then you're talking about like molds of different sizes. You're talking about making parks that you can't use the financial side of that i get i i don't know enough on the cost of actually running a wind tunnel versus the parts but i'm assuming that the fia knows those numbers better sure and that it does make sense i would hate it though yeah it 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 sounds like a a messy and and complex way of getting the job done but uh, of course you know there's obviously a, a lot of decision making that goes on by some pretty smart people as to why they're doing what they they're doing one more element i just want to touch on before we move on from wind tunnels uh the the moving ground plane so for those who've never seen or heard of wind tunnels before you'd sort of think the car would sit stationary in the in the wind tunnel and wind gets blown over it but you know for for proper testing i understand that it's important that the ground plane's actually moving as well so can you talk to us about why why that's so critical yeah so i guess it it really depends on what you're using the wind tunnel for whether i would say that's important or not like if you're going to the wind tunnel because you want to test wing angles Rolling road's probably not the biggest deal. If you're testing underbody stuff, a rolling road's important. So it really depends on what you're testing and what's required. The reason it's important for if you're doing underbody stuff is because obviously that's what it's doing in the real world. And there's kind of, there's tricks that you can kind of get around of not having a rolling road that somewhat simulates stuff. Like basically they'll suck the boundary layer. So as you're flowing air into a wind tunnel, you have what's called boundary layer growth. So any, anytime you anytime air goes over any surface, yeah, the boundary layer grows, which is people don't know what boundary layer is. It's close to the surface, basically at the wall. So wall is a engineering term, but at the surface of whatever you're flowing over, technically the velocity is zero and you have a boundary layer between there. So what it, what it does is it sucks that boundary layer down. So then right as it goes underneath the vehicle, you don't have boundary layer issues. Right. However, that doesn't take in effect wheel wake. And when you're dealing with underbody stuff, your front tire, the wake off the front tire does affect a rear diffuser, does affect the rest of the underbody. If you start turning, that wake goes even more inboard and can definitely affect a diffuser. So if you're doing a lot of underbody stuff, it's very important to have a rolling road because otherwise you don't take in effect. Yeah. the wakes off the tires yeah that makes perfect sense in terms of the the track validation can you talk us through some of the the sensors you're relying on to to get information that's useful to you yeah so if it's like customer vehicle usually we recommend shock pots 
uh, because it's the cheapest way to get into it. We have laser ride heights that we will apply onto vehicles. So we'll do two in the front, one in the rear. Because you basically, when you do laser ride heights, you assume that the the car is a plane and three points make a plane. So uh, two in the front, one in the back seems like the best way to go on that. We have code written that then will say what the actual ride heights are on the corner. And then you can basically tell downforce based on that, based on how much it's moving and motion ratios of the suspension. Yeah, we'll go, go a bit deeper into that. So if you're looking at shock pots or damper potentiometers, that's measuring the movement of the actual damper itself. So we're focusing, obviously the damper is is moving naturally anyway as the, the car pitches and rolls as it goes over irregularities in the track. So there's all, all of that sort of movement going on naturally. But uh, I'm guessing here you're talking about looking at the sort of neutral position of the shot pots stationary versus at maybe 100 mile an hour or something to, to try and get an, a sense of the aerodynamic forces involved. Yeah, and you just have to make sure that when you're doing it that you you are taking effect the motion ratio, which is very easy to do. You can do that on the ground. You can basically just put it on there. You can measure the difference of how much the shock or damper moves, spring moves versus the actual wheel. Mm. Um, go off that, and then, yeah, you just do the calculations that way. So you're then calculating that back through the effective spring rate to sort of calculate out the, the amount of downforce being produced. Is that is that sort of the, the rough idea? Yeah. Okay. Again, just because of all the things I mentioned before, a reasonably noisy input, is, is there a specific way you're sort of driving the car in order to get data to that that is useful and as clean as you can possibly get it when you're trying to do these tests? So luckily, our local track has a decent straight line section before you get to turn one. And that's where we try to pull the data from before you get into the braking zone. And that's that's the best way you can do it. Problem is, there's almost always a crosswind. So like, and the, the data is still noisy. The track's very smooth, which is beneficial. If you have a bumpy track, it's even more of a nightmare. We've worked with a buddy of ours who does data acquisition for IMSA. And he walked us through some ways to try to clean it up. But he said it's even in professional motorsports, that's it's a very hard process to get right. And a lot of people act like it's really, really easy. Like, oh, you just do this, this. It's still really dirty to try to actually correlate it to something that like when you're physically testing it, like in CFD or a wind tunnel, the car is not dynamically moving. And a car on the track is never like even if. Yes, you can cut like a snippet of time out of that car, but it's never exactly what you're testing at. Yeah. So unless you have that track data, you take that very small snippet of time and then you put that into CFD and then test it. But that's still not going to be necessarily right because you don't know on the track is everything that's the reason why it's low. Is that only because of downforce or did it also hit a bump or there's a lot of different things that can go that it can affect it that you don't really fully know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when when you're getting a driver to do these sort of tests, are you looking at the data just before the driver gets off the throttle and on the brakes, or are you doing essentially a coast down where the driver will clutch in and actually let the car coast so there's no sort of heave movement from acceleration and braking? So we try to do that. We actually pay, his name's Dan Clark. He's He used to race IndyCar. Basically, teaches people how to drive at the track that we're at. He drives the car. He's very good at 
driving it in a way that because he knows we're looking for data. Mm. So he's not driving for the fastest lap. He's driving as good as possible to get us the data we need. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what because if you have any other normal driver, like you couldn't put me in the car and I couldn't get you good data. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I really just wanted to focus on the fact that people probably who have never done it before think that this is going to be easy to get useful data but there's a lot that goes into it and you know again the the shot pot data is inherently noisy in and of itself anyway mm-hmm. in terms of comparison between shot pot data and laser right height you've mentioned how three points can form a plane so then you actually know the movement of the of the whole chassis uh, obviously you're then looking at specific ride heights as opposed to extrapolating that out from the motion ratio, which you've mentioned there when you're looking at the damper versus what the wheel's actually doing. Uh, Very seldom are they a one-to-one relationship. So is that the advantage with a laser ride height, just getting rid of that that sort of correlation, that motion ratio and directly measuring ride height, or are there other advantages too? The big advantage is it's easier getting the data. Like It's less dirty. And because of that, it makes it a little easier to correlate. It's also very easy to put on the car and run wires. Uh, so there's like a bunch of benefits, except that it's more expensive. Yeah. Uh, usually it's pretty easy to find spots to mount it for temporary time periods. You don't have to make any sort of, you still have to make bracketry, but you're not having to try to move around wheels, brakes, and all of that to mount it onto the suspension. So we found it just a lot easier to mount to all a bunch of different cars. Yeah, makes sense. Now, let's come back a little bit, actually. We, we've talked about sort of the, the baseline test you do in CFD. You know, once you've done those, how are you deciding what components you need to actually make? Is this sort of, you know, just comes from experience once you've done a, done a bunch, you can sort of decide, all right, well, you know, if we want to put a, a, a larger or different rear wing on it and then maybe it's going to need a, a different splitter or dive planes or whatever to maintain some aerodynamic balance, is that just coming from experience or is it an iterative process of playing around in CFD and seeing how the, the model responds? A little bit of both. I would say it tends more towards the, you do it enough, you kind of know what in general needs to be done if you're going to balance it out because... A lot of it is to get the downforce, you need to get better track times. The biggest bang for the buck is always going to be a rear wing. Well, if you do a rear wing, you need to balance out the forces. So you need a front splitter, most likely dive planes usually won't do enough. But then you're playing the game of, especially for these cars, what kind of aero balance you need. Because that's really the biggest key driving the development of parts minus sheer downforce. So you you know you need to make more downforce. Okay, so you make that downforce, but where do you put that balance? And that's been kind of a fight really the entire time of figuring out where to do it because depending on the what kind of driver you have, what kind of driver skill you have, depends on where you really want to place that. The better skilled driver they are, the more it's going to be shifted more forward and the more amateur they are, the more they're going to want to rear work. So if you're releasing a kit, that makes that very difficult because mm-hmm. you're releasing a kit for all types of drivers, whether you're amateur or you're a really good driver. So we try to build it in enough where there's enough adjustment where you can kind of cover both bases, which isn't always possible. It's a lot easier when you're doing a custom package for a very specific driver who has a who can tell you kind of like where it is. So like Jackie Ding, Jackie Ding. His car has the most forward bias of any car we've ever done. 
And that was off what he specifically wanted. He wanted more and more front. And that's based on his driving style. So you're talking here essentially, if we're talking about a rear-wheel drive car, I guess we should clear that up. Uh, that forward bias is going to give a, a lot of front end grip, so reducing understeer, but therefore the car is more likely to be loose or oversteering. So that requires what you're saying there, a, a, a driver with a high level of skill and control of the car versus if you're bringing that bias rearward, it's going to give a lot of rear end grip, but it's going to make the car generally understeer, which the average driver finds much easier to control. Is, is that sort of what I'm picking up from from what you're saying there? Yeah, because there's like generic things of what you're supposed to do for aero balance. So like usually you want it, they'll tell you if you're you're learning it in school or anything like that, that you want to do five to 10% rearward of where your center of balance is for the car, like um, your center of gravity, I guess, sure. a better way of putting it, like the weight. So you want it you want it behind that for stability reasons. Okay. But where exactly that is could be anywhere. It's not necessary. You could have it right at the center of gravity. You could have it way further back, just depending on what the driver wants. Maybe the driver wants it in front of that. If you're setting up an open wheel car, you're developing the entire car from scratch. That's a little bit different. But a lot of times on these cars, like you can't control where that point's located. And then suspension geometry affects this also. So there's a lot of things that kind of affect it. And honestly, it's the hardest thing to get right. It's very, very difficult to get something. And a lot of that comes down to testing and kind of how we try to develop it in CFD at a balance number that makes sense where we can adjust it if it doesn't make, if it's not good on track. Because a lot of times if Eric's driving the car, Eric's more like Dan, he likes a lot more front grip. But we found that a lot of amateurs who are buying some of these still want it more rearward. So we have to come up with a nice balance. So I have to usually, when I develop the kit for that front balance, I'm doing it with the rear wing at a low angle of attack. Mm -hmm. So when we sell it to the end user, they can still shift it rearward as they need. Yeah, that and makes then sense. usually we try to come up with like a nice idea of like, hey, if you're not super well experienced, maybe start at eight degrees angle of attack. And then as you feel comfortable, you can start decreasing that. And you should get faster at that point. You should start to get faster as you decrease it. Not because you're decreasing drag or anything like that, but just because it's actually a better setup for that call. Yeah. I'm assuming here as well that aerodynamic balance is going to also be affected by the, the rake of the, the car. And what I'm getting at here is, uh, for those who haven't heard that term rake, I'm talking about the relative ride height front and rear. So if you've got the, the rear higher than, than the front of the car. And I mean, I'm, this might only be by literally millimetres. It doesn't have to be really significant. But that that is going to have an impact on this aerodynamic balance and the whole aerodynamic performance. So does that get you into a sort of a tricky situation where customers have potentially got adjustable coilovers and you know maybe they've they've got their ride heights, you know, maybe a little out of the ballpark affecting that rake? Yeah, so that's that's another thing. So like a lot of the so not only does Everything that I talked about, like affect it. You also have the dynamic changes of the car on track drastically changes right height. One thing a lot of people don't think of. So say you have a splitter with tunnels in it. A splitter with tunnels is going to act different at right heights in the front, way different than a rear wing. A rear wing is not affected by right height changes or brake changes a whole lot. Very little, very minor changes. A splitter does by a lot. So that's one thing that was pretty tricky. Like we've done quite a bit of cars for Pikes Peak. And they start off at a higher ride height. So that's 
that's where it starts to get real, real tricky with getting that kind of spot right. And a lot of that comes down to testing and then making changes from there and then hoping you design in enough adjustment that you can kind of fix yeah. the problems with those adjustments. Just just jumping to the underbody and that front splitter and the tunnels that you've mentioned here. And again, I just want to be very clear, I'm not an aerodynamicist, so I'm, I'm talking a little bit outside of my my area of expertise here. But uh, my understanding is with the, the underbody performance generally, aerodynamically, that's a great way if it's designed properly to, to get good increases in downforce with little to no increase in drag. Whereas uh, a wing, for example, there's always going to be an increase in drag that comes along with the downforce you're producing. In terms of the sensitivity to ride height as well, you know, sort of from what I, I sort of understand, getting the car low to a point improves the underbody performance. But if it gets too low, essentially the underbody can stall and you get a rapid reduction in uh, downforce. Uh, am I completely off the mark here or is that sort of along the right track? That's 100% right. 100% right. So, like, usually you try to design for a window, a ride height window. Obviously, the smartest way is to design your system to have the greatest area under the curve. So, your ride height curve, you want the greatest area under that because that's going to be your most downforce with how the car is dynamically driving on track. Like, who cares how much downforce the car makes in some position that the car is never going to be in? So you want to look at how the car is going to be acting on track. You want to test for those. You want to make sure that your balance is in point. You want to make sure that you're making as much downforce in that area. And then going back to like efficiency, like say you're looking at like a dual element wing, you'll be lucky to have a L over D or lift over drag or for race cars, downforce over drag. It'll probably be in the seven to eight range if you're really lucky for a dual element wing. So that that's saying you're making eight pounds of downforce for every one pound of drag. Okay. Yep. Where like a splitter, it can at least it'll, it'll usually at least be 30, 30 to one, if not higher. Right, it's a significant difference. Yeah. And like underbody, like if you're doing like a full floor, it could easily be a hundred to one. Supposedly a number I heard from my professor who did formula one stuff. He said it, they've seen numbers as high as 300 to one. Wow. So that tells you the level of why so much work goes into the underbody of the car, because it's much, much more efficient. And the numbers that you can make off of it is just insane because you're dealing with ground effects yeah. and ground effects make a huge difference, but it comes with a lot of negatives, like what you're talking about stall. So you have to be careful with basically your expansion, whether you're looking at like a front wing for a formula car or diffusers on any other car, you have basically a volume expansion that it can handle before it starts separating. And the higher ride height you have, the higher expansion you can get away with. Okay. Which kind of seems counterintuitive, but if you really think about how the physics is working around fluid, it does make sense. So that's where you become into issues. So you really need to know where that car is going to be on the track because you could say the car's set up to run at 70 millimeter ride height. You don't think it's going to go really below 30. But what happens at 25 millimeters, if it can go 25 millimeters, but it, it completely stalls it out, which is very likely. So you have to make sure you're designing everything so it's working in a window. And the goal is to work as good as possible in as big of a window as you can. Yeah. And make it ideally as linear as possible. So it's not you're not having weird dips or valleys in your map because that makes the car unpredictable on track. Yeah. And 
like, yeah, you could design the best number wise, but if the car's not predictable and the driver can't drive it, doesn't matter how good the computer or whatever says it is, the driver can't drive it well and it's not very drivable, doesn't matter. So you want it to be ideally as smooth as possible also, that map. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. And when you say it quickly, it sounds like a really easy job, which <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it's anything. But uh, just, just moving back to that uh, sort of aerodynamic balance as well, you, we've sort of talked about the fact that the car's always dynamically moving when the car, the driver brakes, obviously, the, the front of the car dives and under acceleration, it's going to squat. So every, everything's sort of moving. But I'm, I'm interested, is it safe to assume that that aerodynamic balance is also moving relative to the car's speed? Uh, what I'm getting at here, it doesn't stay fixed from zero to sort of 200 mile an hour or, or is it reasonably consistent all other things being equal and that all other things being equal is a, a, a big sort of very difficult to achieve I understand all things being equal then yes it's fairly linear okay but even with that because at speed you're so if you go from if your ride height's not changing or anything like that realistically yes it'll be the same but at, at speed, your car is going to do different things because your front's going to start lowering at a, at a higher rate than your rear is because your front's lower to the ground and that speed affects it a lot more. Yeah. So if you look at like a downforce graph on a front splitter, like if you can actually plot the front splitter versus like say that, or a better way would be plotting the downforce on the two front axle or the front axle versus the rear axle, it, the, the graphs look different. So in reality, that's going to be moving. Yeah, sure. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, another question that that quite often crops up, which hopefully you might be able to give us a little bit more insight into, uh, just when people are talking about aerodynamics in general, the sort of talk about at what speed do we do we actually have to be going in order for the underbody and the the wing elements to produce enough downforce to be significant. Is there sort of a, a, a rule of thumb or a guide on that? I mean, obviously it's going to depend on the the aerodynamic components on the vehicle as well. But yeah, can you, can you give us anything on that? So I think a lot of that's kind of overblown because uh, you design it for, like when you're doing aerodynamics, you're designing it kind of for what it's going to be doing. So like people say, oh, aerodynamics doesn't, like downforce doesn't work if you're going slow. Well, I'll tell that to all the Formula SA teams that are only doing 20 to 30 mile an hour. All those cars are putting high downforce on the cars for a reason. Sure. But the cars look totally different. Like that's not a type of setup you're going to have on a car that's going to be doing 120 mile an hour. So in reality, I would say you you really start noticing it. If I had to give a number around 60 mile an hour, you would definitely start noticing it. But because it, it goes like downforce goes up with the square speed from 120 to 160, it's astronomical. Like the changes is astronomical from 80 to 120. It's astronomical difference. But like you do start feeling it early, but a lot of people don't because it's such a like if you're looking at just numbers, because the numbers are so big higher up, people are assuming that the lower numbers aren't doing anything, which isn't true. Yeah, it's just you design it for a specific case. And if your car's only going to be doing 30 mile an hour, you design it so it's making downforce at 30 mile an hour. But of course, that that design would then be a huge aerodynamic drag at, at much higher speeds. Yes. Okay. Right. Let, let's jump into the Porsche 992 GT3 in, in a little bit more detail, and we sort of talked about why 
uh, you've chosen that platform, which which makes sense. I, I'm really interested in this one because I've sort of followed the development of, of that vehicle and the GT3 RS as well. And yeah, there's there's a couple of videos on YouTube I've watched where Porsche internally have gone over their aerodynamic development and you know the considerations in there. I guess ultimately they're a they're a, a, a manufacturer with, from our perspective, almost an unlimited budget. So. How how does Verus come along and go? Hey, I like what you've done here, Porsche. But um, yeah, hold my beer. I'm going to do a better job. So I wouldn't say we do a better job. We just do a different job. They do a very good job of what their goal is: is to make a car that makes some downforce and it's still OEM. Like they have they have specific rules they have to meet. They have specific like like you can't have I don't like I know there's very specific OEM rules on like if you had some sort of splitter and stuff like that, which is usually why they have some like fancy air dam looking thing to kind of do the job for it. So they have a like a big rule set of what you can and can't do. You're talking here sort of maybe around safety a, a pedestrian gets hit by the car, that sort of element. Yeah, and then they have like actual cost constraints for making it as a production part versus like us where they're making thousands and we're making tens. Like there's different constraints that they have to look at first us. And so that's where we can play the game a little bit differently. So I wouldn't say we do a better job. We just do it differently. Okay. On that particular model, what, what did you highlight as the, the potential areas for improvement or weaknesses as you saw them? So the biggest one's the rear wing, which don't get me wrong, their rear wings are actually phenomenal for what they're designed for. They're very, very low drag, and they make decent downforce for the drag numbers. By far, they're the most efficient wings I've ever tested. Not the 992, but the, going back to the 991, their GT3 wing was like 25 to 1. It's by far the highest wow. rear wing we've tested, but it doesn't make that much downforce. They're, um, the, GT, the GT2, um, GT3, or the 992 GT3 is a different type of wing. But it's not as efficient, but it's still almost 20 to 1. It's very, very efficient versus like ours is nowhere near that. But we're making a lot more downforce. And then you're looking at it. Does that drag make that big of a difference to track times versus that downforce? And they have to look at gas mileage and things like that, which we don't. Like we don't have to look at any of that kind of stuff. We're looking at does it does it make the car faster on track? Yes or no? Yeah. And if it does, then that's what we're concerned with. And if not, so that was like the first target is when we do the baseline. Okay. What does the wing do? All right. We put all the R's on. What does that do? Okay. Now we have that. What does that do to balance? Okay. It shifts it rearward X amount. Now we need to come up with something in the front to fix that. And then maybe we have like a few other things like for that car, we have these actual pieces that bolt into the factory wing that give it more angle of attack. So on that car, because of how it was designed, one thing we thought that would be cool is, hey, does does the wing actually work at higher angles of attack than the OEM lets you adjust it to? Which it does. It actually works at four degrees more. Oh, wow. Once you get to six degrees, it does not. It starts to stall out. So we made mounts in there specifically to get more angle of attack for that factory wing. And to balance that out, you can just use dive points. The splitter would shift it too far forward. But then if you shift our rear wing, you need a splitter then to balance it. From, from again, my sort of uh, lack of understanding of aerodynamics on face value, I, I would see getting more downforce at the rear of the car being well relatively easy. Obviously, there's the uh, lift versus drag 
coefficient or equation to consider there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, basically, you you could put a a, a different rear wing on to increase the downforce there but on face value I would see balancing that out with the front end of the car being more tricky is that is that a fair read on the scenario so yes and no on a car at that level making rear downforce is the easiest part and then making front is difficult but I wouldn't is more difficult but the reason it's more difficult isn't the physics of actually making downforce it's actually more of actually designing the splitter so you can actually hold it onto the car Mm. and it's the manufacturing and actually design side of the splitter that actually makes it the most difficult because the oem cars don't give you a whole lot of stuff if you want to chassis mount it to make it because we pride ourselves in making things that are full bolt on um where you're not cut especially on those cars where you're not cutting anything which Try mounting a splitter to the front of a Porsche without cutting stuff. It's very, very difficult. So that, and that's where you have to play with, okay, what can we design that's still manufacturable, that still hits the performance we need? Because you can't just keep making the splitter longer and longer out front because that doesn't work because you, you don't want splitter ties because you're not going to drill through the front bumper. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that that's a big restriction, big constraint. Yes. Because they, they like to track their cars for a few years and then sell them and get the next one. That's what we found from the Porsche market. Like those guys buy the car new, they track it for a while, they sell it and get a new one. And then they do this whole thing again. Yeah, sounds sounds like a tough life. Yeah, so we have to, That that's why making the fronts more difficult. But when you get in like a more of a, like a time attack car, I think making the fronts less, it's easier to do than the rear. I mean, what you're sort of mentioning there for those who maybe aren't picking up what we're putting down you produce some downforce from that front splitter or a significant amount of downforce and it needs to be incredibly solidly mounted to the vehicle and you know there's there's vehicles photos of vehicles that will time attack with the whole team standing on the front splitter just to give a demonstration of, of how rigid and how well supported those are but as you say that that's tough to do if your constraint is that you're not going to cut up the car or or do anything of that nature, so yeah, I I, I totally understand that. Uh, in terms of the the package that you you developed, can you give me an idea of you know as a percentage increase in downforce? Maybe what what that what that does? Yeah, so I don't have the data in front of me, but it makes I know it makes double at least double the amount of downforce than it does factory. Wow, which that's huge, but. Yes and no, uh, because OEM cars don't really make that much downforce. You're not talking about like they're making a thousand pounds and you're making 2000 pounds. You're talking about like the difference of 300 to 600, okay. which that's not that hard to do when you're switching out like a rear wing and stuff. So it's not, and I'm not saying those are the actual numbers because again, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but it's at least double. I do somewhat remember, I could tell you Newton's um, at 80 mile an hour because that's how we test and then I translate that into pounds because that's what makes sense in my head. Yep. But obviously everybody knows that SI is a lot, a lot easier to do math on. So like we always test at 80 mile an hour um, speed wise and CFD or well, not always, but usually. And then I output Newton. So it's, it's around somewhere between 1000 and 1300 Newtons at 80 mile an hour. Coming back to the the rear wing design, and I mean, this is nothing new, but I just wanted to dive into it seeing as we've got you here. Uh, the the swan neck style of, of wing, we've seen a lot of the, the high-end uh, race cars and even OE manufacturers with road cars sort of go that route rather than mounting to the, the, the bottom of the wing. 
And my, my understanding here is the underside of the wing is really the part that's doing the work. So is, is that purely just to clean up the flow which you have otherwise would have had interrupted by where the, the stays mount to the underside of the wing? Yeah, so the the whole point is it makes it more efficient um, because the bottom side of the wing is doing majority of the work than the top side. The good way to look at it is a lot of times if you're looking at CFD images, people will show pressure or if what they should be showing is actually a coefficient of pressure. And then if you look at that, that's basically an easy way to look at it. It's just normalized over like a, like it takes velocity out of the mix. Okay. So if you look at a CP plot, it doesn't matter if it's being plotted at 80 mile an hour or 120 mile an hour. It should look very, very similar. And it just gives numbers that are way easier to look at than Pascal's. A pretty high pressure when you're looking at CP would be like 0.8. So like if the top side of your wing is doing very well, you're going to have like 0.8. Where the bottom side of the wing, you could easily have like minus four. So if you look at it just on that, it's doing four times the amount of work. So if you can clean up the bottom side of the wing, that makes a much bigger difference than anything you can do on the top. Yeah, it does throw a wrench into the system, though, when you're talking about mechanically actually mounting it, because it's a lot harder to it's most likely going to be a heavier setup because the upright needs to actually be stronger. Okay, because it's actually putting a bending moment yeah. into the upright. Whereas like if you're mounting it on the bottom, you don't have to worry about that downforce actually changing your angle of attack where as like on a swan mount, as you're making downforce, it's actually wanting to pull it down Yeah, and it's going to change that angle of attack. So usually when we do like FEA on uprights, we're not actually doing it to make sure it's strong enough because usually it's going to be strong enough. We focus on how much the angle is actually changing and keep it in a certain range to make sure it's not changing the angle of attack too much. We try to keep it around a half a degree. Yeah, okay. So you can sort of take into account what that change in angle of attack is likely to be at 100, 120 miles an hour and, and factor that into your, yeah. your wing uh, angle statically. Yep. I assume having that swan mount, swan neck mount, with the stays coming up in front of the wing, that's still going to disrupt the airflow onto both the top and bottom surfaces of the wing anyway. I, I'm guessing the fact that they're doing it, it's still less of a consideration or less of a disruption than mounting to the underside of the wing. Yeah, so a good way to kind of look at it is, so if you're mounting on the, on the bottom, usually what's going to happen is you're going to end up having like a V-shape of separation um, coming off where that mount's located. So it'll spread out like a V. Okay. Whereas if you have top mounts, you're going to have a slim, uh, a slim like rectangle going down the rear where basically where that mount is, but it's a little bit lower pressure right there, but it's not separated or anything like that. So you do have less performance than if you did like the ideal way would be obviously mounting it off the end plates, but that's not feasible mm. for most cars, unless you're a formula yeah. car. Yeah. Okay, I guess the, the million dollar question is, do, do we have any lap time comparison between Porsche's effort and yours? Um, we will be releasing that soon. Okay. So we've been, it'll be both between BBI's doing it and then we are also doing it. So it's going to be two different comparisons. So you'll have like two different drivers, two different tracks, two different environments, because it's a lot colder here than it is there. Yeah. So. You'll have, well, you'll have a slew of different ones. So we're going to have that being released. So I don't want to give numbers out yet until it's actually released. Totally fair enough. 
does that give you sort of a, a little nervous moment waiting for this data to roll in and sort of actually prove that everything you've done in CFD, validation, etc., plays out to what we really are trying to achieve here, of course, is just faster lap times? It used to, um, less now, because I've seen it work over and over again. So less concerning. We have had some points where it kind of threw a wrench into the system and it didn't quite work as well as we thought it would work. And sometimes that's, well, usually that's on me because like I'm the one who's doing that type of work and it, it sucks, but it is what it's part of engineering. If you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. So like people are too concerned about failing where like failing is just a good way to learn. I've, I've always said I, I learn more from the failures than the stuff that goes right. So it sounds like you kind of agree with that statement. Uh, a thousand percent thousand percent so if you go back to school that's why i'm not a big fan of necessarily like if we're hiring somebody i don't necessarily judge somebody if they didn't get a 4.0 sure they get a 4.0 you're not like you're obviously smart but do you really know how to fail and get back like on the horse and keep keep going or are you going to completely fall apart if you fail yeah that's a good point all right moving on you mentioned when we were talking about the uprights for the the swam out wing the the fact you're using FEA. So can, can we dive into that a little bit? For, for those who haven't heard the term before for a start, what's it stand for? So it's finite element analysis, which is kind of, so basically what it is, is you're, it's very similar. It's a similar concept to CFD. So CFD, you're breaking up the fluid into chunks of fluid as, depending on how you mesh it, but rectangles, we'll just say rectangles or squares. So you're doing the same thing with FEA. And then instead of, solving like the momentum equation for fluids, the Navier-Stokes equation, you're solving for stresses and whatever else you're looking for in it. Like a lot of FEA, you're also doing like thermal testing, stuff like that too. We don't do that, but like that's also used in FEA quite a bit is thermal testing, but you're breaking, breaking up the blocks. You're putting your boundary conditions in it, which on FEA are going to be like fixed conditions. So where is it fixed in place? So like, where is it bolted? Where are the loads being applied? How it's being applied? Apply those loads, and then it solves it just like it, like CFD, basically, and it just solves it until it converges, and then you have your results. So you've mentioned there with the wing mount, you're using that to effectively figure out what that's doing to the angle of attack with the spending moment that the wing is essentially applying into. But FEA is used for all manner of things in the automotive world in terms of suspension components, for example. Uh, basically mm-hmm. proving that the design, the material chosen, etc., is going to be fit for purpose, essentially strong enough to not fail in use, correct? Yeah, and I'm not like an FEA expert. Most of the FEA we do is, I would say, very basic for what like the industry, like if you're in the OEM world, their FEA is much, much more advanced than what I do. I'm just applying basic loading operations to a basic single part. That's yeah. not, I'm not doing an assembly or anything like that. So just very basic, basic FEA. But yeah, it's you can use it for all kinds of things. Sure. Uh, I'm guessing it's, it's another one of those scenarios where if the inputs aren't correct, then the outputs are basically going to be garbage as well. With the wing mount, I could probably understand that getting some realistic values on, on the loads being applied shouldn't be too difficult. So I'm guessing you can do a, a reasonably reliable job there. Other components, mm-hmm. a little bit harder to, to actually come up with what the loads are, are likely to be in the real world. Yeah, so like the wing, it's very easy. So we basically fix where it's bolted to the car. 
like if it's if it's in single shear then you can you can basically split the surface so you know where it's being mated up against one side you have the bolt lo- hole locations you have the how big the washers are so you can split that surface and you can kind of fix that stuff in place you know the loading because of the wing so we i can pull the data and cfd off the wing of x and y and so then you apply those points so you basically do and where the wings mounted on the uh, upright, you would do the X direction. So you'd have the down going down how much it's, or I mean, actually X rearward. So you'd be basically how much drag it's creating. So you put that rearward and then you put the downforce down and then you apply that to it. And so how I test it, you could do it two different ways. So obviously I only test one upright at a time or actually just one upright because they're going to be mirrors or the same part. So I test one at the full loading of the wing. And the reason I do that, because that's not actually what it's being seen. So to get to know exactly what's going to be seen in the upright, what you would do is you would half those forces because you have two uprights. Sure. That makes sense. Yep. So I do the full force. And the reason I do the full force is then I know I have a factor of safety of two. So that as long as as long as we're not failing and then I can do the direct calculation off that single run of how much the angle's changing, I'm good. So that's how I do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, could you give us just for interest sake uh, an idea of you know how, how much deflection you're seeing? In, in other words, how much is the angle of attack actually changing with these typical uh, swan mount style wings at speed? So we, we keep it below half a degree at most ideally i would like for the ucw i would keep it below 0.2 when you're doing a dual element for the like the v2x that we have that's like on the pikes peak cars and stuff like that that's it's very difficult so if you actually look at some of our mounts you'll be like man why are they so tall like why do they go so much higher than like what you would need to just mount to the wing and that's because you need that you need that height to get the rigidity to keep it from rotating yeah it's it's just basic like if you look at like beam analysis stuff um like in statics it it would make sense if you start looking at basically that of why it's so high mm-hmm. and it and that's why it's somewhat of an issue because then weight comes into effect because because you have to have it that high and then you also have to have the thickness to make sure you have the strength so that's where the game comes in of like is that efficiency of the rear wing worth it for that weight and that's sometimes it is and sometimes it's not Everything's a, a balancing act, and the name of the game, I guess, is always getting the best compromise. Yep, that is all engineering is, is <laughs> trying to get the best compromise. There is no perfect solution. I just wanted to take a moment to interrupt this interview, and if you are enjoying our chat with Paul, I've got a course that I think would be really well suited to you. That is our Motorsport Fabrication Fundamentals course. I know a lot of enthusiasts think that the skills of fabrication are something that's probably too hard for them to learn. The reality is couldn't be further from the truth. This course is valued at $99. US If you want to use our coupon code PODCAST75, you can get $75 off that purchase if it's your first course. Now, it covers all of the fabrication tools that you'll need, how to use them, the materials that you're likely to come across, and how you'd select the correct material for your application, the fundamentals of designing components so that you can design safe and reliable components for use on your car. 
some of the practical skills that go along with fabrication, welding techniques and welding options, setting up your fabrication space and then we also have some worked examples where you can see some of the skills you learn in this course being put into action under real world projects. If you are interested in this course, remember 99 US dollars, we'll put a link in the description so you can find that nice and easily. All right, let's get back to our interview with Paul. There's a couple more elements that I wanted to talk about. Uh, just in terms of the CFD, uh, I, I know you've got some information on your, your website about CFD being used not just for aerodynamics but also for heat exchanger design and, and specifically here, uh, getting out of, outside of aerodynamics for a moment, uh, the, the design of the end tanks for let's say an intercooler. And this is something I, I've seen questions pop up occasionally if we if we look at your typical aftermarket generic 600 by 300 76 mil thick intercooler and generally that design will have end tanks where the inlet and outlet are both at the the lower extremity of the intercooler and, and the question that, that pops up is with no sort of turning veins or anything like that inside of those end tanks are we primarily only heat loading the, the lower portion of the intercooler with the top of it doing very little? Uh, yeah, give us give us some, some knowledge around that and, and you know, how it can be improved if that's an issue? It's somewhere in between. I don't think you need it. I think that a lot of people sometimes focus on things that are the least, not not necessarily the least important, but less important in the system. I think you have better fish to fry, I guess, uh, before you start thinking about in-tank design. I think core geometry and core, I think a lot of people cheap out on certain things that are way more important than making some crazy custom in-tanks. Um, like a quality core, I've, I like PWR personally. We worked closely with them. They're good at getting you data. I think that's a better bang for the buck, I guess, first. Then you obviously have your tubing design. A lot of people don't pay enough close attention. You can have a lot of losses in a lot of the parts of the system before you even get to the intake design. That would be like one of the last things I focus on. But say all things are already fairly optimized, then yes, it does make a difference. How much of a difference it makes really depends on kind of really what you're doing and how much kind of pressure drop is going across the core. Okay. I think it's more important on a, a like a charge cooler. So like air side, like intercooler, than it would be on a radiator Yeah, because of the viscosity of the fluid. And that does play a role in it too. One of the things that I'll just bring up here as well, because you mentioned the, the core being so important and, and I couldn't agree more with that statement. And I, I, I think what really opened my eyes to that was uh, through my old business we were building and tuning performance cars that that was our our day to day and um you know everyone's got a budget obviously we were dealing generally with younger enthusiasts who who didn't have the uh, the sort of the Porsche 992 budget so you know parts were, mm. were chosen accordingly and there's a lot of these generic intercoolers coming out of I'm guessing probably China and Taiwan. We had a supplier in New Zealand we were using. Uh, we'd dealt with them for years. We are buying these intercoolers that were pretty cost effective and for all intents and purposes did a, a pretty good job. Probably could have done a better job with a PWR or something professional but you know, at, at a much higher price point. So anyway, I, the, the point of the story is 
the supplier in China or Taiwan uh, unknowingly changed their design. So on the outside, the intercooler still looked exactly the same as what we'd always been buying. And uh, we, we had a car on the dyno and the intake air temperatures were absolutely through the roof. I'm, I'm talking sort of 65, 70 degrees C at relatively modest boost pressures and it, it just wasn't making the power that we knew that package should make. On further inspection, what we actually found was, uh, I'm guessing as a cost saving, if you looked inside the intercooler, cooler through the passes essentially they were almost completely open there were no internal fins so the the <coughs> surface area for that heat exchange was was dramatically reduced so it just wasn't able to do its job and we back to backed it with essentially another intercooler identical in every way shape and form except it had the internal finning that we'd always used and I, I think off the top of my head we picked up about 40 kilowatts at the wheels and the air temperatures were within about 10 or 15 degrees of, of ambient so just to, to sort of double down on what you're saying there, there's some very important aspects that are, are really easy to overlook there. But interesting to hear that maybe those in-tank designs aren't as critical as a lot of people maybe are led to believe. Yeah, and the big thing to think about when you're talking about those internal fins is in the industry, those are called turbulators. And the reason they're called turbulators is because it's it's not just to get the area, mm-hmm. but it's to actually create turbulence. Sure, okay. A lot of people are thinking you don't want turbulence, but like when you're designing like flow through some sort of charge cooler, you want you want turbulent airflow because turbulent airflow means you're mixing up the flow in that boundary layer, which actually allows more heat transfer. So if you don't have turbulent, like if you actually have laminar flow in your coolers, you're not getting nearly the performance you should. And that's one way you size coolers properly is to make sure you have uh, turbulence in there. Okay, that, that's a great point. I guess this also comes to the balance between how efficient the the heat exchanger is and pressure drop through that heat exchanger. Because I'm guessing the more turbulence you're creating, the more fins that are involved there, you you're, you're going to do a better job of the actual heat transfer. But it is going to create a pressure drop across the intercooler. Yeah. So like on the air side, like on an intercooler, it's a lot more critical to play that game like for pressure drop than it is for say like an oil cooler yeah, like turbulator like you can have pretty aggressive turbulators on an oil cooler and it's less of an issue yeah. because it's obviously not affecting how much power you're making yeah i think it's another one of those elements when we're talking about an intercooler as a heat exchanger that that people don't give too much thought to because it's very uncommon that we would actually measure the pressure drop it's uncommon that we would be measuring or looking at boost pressure pre-charge cooler, it's always in the inlet manifold and that's the, the number we look at. But in terms of the actual performance of the turbo or the compressor itself, it's the pressure ratio that the, the compressor's working at that, that really dictates where we are in the, the compressor map and that's the the pressure at the compressor outlet divided by the pressure at the inlet. So if you've got a really restrictive core, you're basically essentially making the turbo work that much harder and, and creating that much more heat to get your desired boost pressure in the inlet manifold. But I, I digress. I just thought we'll, 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 we'll cover that off while we are here. Talking about manufacturing parts, because that's another thing you, you're involved with. We already talked earlier in, in this uh, interview uh, maybe not making them in-house necessarily, but in terms of the process here, when we're using software to 3D model a component, you've got a lot of flexibility. You can basically design anything you want and, and make it look however you want. 
But when it actually comes to turning that 3D model into a physical product, there's some considerations around how you're going to actually manufacture the component and it's possible to design something that either is going to be incredibly expensive to manufacture or sometimes maybe impossible obviously with 3d printing of metals that's coming a bit more of a gray area now but i'm interested what what's the sort of philosophy there that various use is this a sort of an experience thing are you choosing the manufacturing process and designing around that or is it vice versa yeah so this is actually the i think the hardest thing to train engineers on is manufacturability it's definitely the hardest part when we bring in interns to actually design things that not necessarily it can be made, but made efficiently. Mm. So when you're looking at like manufacturing, it's all about like efficiency because that drives cost on that factor. So it's definitely helped the more and more stuff we brought in house. So like splitter blades, we, we manufacture in house now and then um, machine parts. We machine everything in house. Now we have two DMG five axis machines. And since doing that, it definitely kind of, opened your eyes a little bit more to what you thought you were already doing well, you weren't doing as well as you could be doing. And that's, that was definitely a big learning curve. Um, and we've improved on, and it's definitely possible to design things that can't be manufactured. It's also possible to design it the wrong way based on the manufacturing process. Usually because of how we start the process, we have an idea of what needs to kind of be made aerodynamically to work. And from that, we know what kind of price point generally we need to sell it at based on the market. And off that, we can then decide on the manufacturing route we want to go, whether it's going to be machined, sheet metal, carbon fiber, or whatever. And then from there, you figure out, okay, what are our restrictions when we're making this? And then just making it to that. And one thing a lot of, a lot of engineers are good at coming out of school they, they can usually design machine components that can be made, but that aren't the best. So a lot of things like, like even though we have a five axis machine, you can pretty much cut kind of really whatever you want. There's faster ways of doing it. So just the normal of them knowing that like the difference between a ball nose and a bull nose and just a regular end mill. So regular end mill is just squared at the bottom, leaves a hard edge. Bull nose has like a smaller radius. All the stuff in the States are all in inches, which is kind of annoying since we design in metric. So like bull nose, like 30 thou, 60 thou, 120 thou bottom radius. So if you know you're machining something like straight down and you're going to go pocket and you know it's going to be a bull nose, well, you need to make sure that that inside radius is the size of a tool you actually have. Because if you design it as a size that you don't have, you're like if you make it to print, then you're going to have to come in with a ball and ball that where that's not the most efficient way to do it. And then you also need to make sure your radius is, so say you're doing a pocket, you need to make sure the radiuses are big enough that your tool's not hitting both corners of the pocket. Sure. You, you don't want it to be on that corner, so it needs to be a big enough radius that can actually go around that pocket. So, and the biggest struggle is a lot of people don't really know how parts are made. Even engineers don't really know how parts are made, surprisingly. And because of that, they end up designing stuff that's not the most optimum route to go. And sheet metal is a whole new animal because not that it's new technology. It's been around for a long time, but it's not something that you really go into at school at all. Okay. So most like the people coming in have no idea even what to do on sheet metal. Like 
what he's using. Like they don't even know material thicknesses <laughs> and what like material thicknesses, what, what kind of bend radiuses can you do with material thicknesses? Like what kind of materials are you using? So like, obviously if you're bending aluminum, it's got, and you're welding it, it's got to be 3000 series or 5,000. So it's almost always going to be 50, 52 because that's the most common, but then how tight can you bend eighth inch 50, 52 at? They don't know the, like, which you don't really know the answer until you do it. So there's a lot of things like that on the manufacturing side that like, you just don't know until you really get into it and start doing, and hopefully you get a job at a place where they have people to mentor you to, so you can learn these things. Yeah, I, I was going to say from what what you're explaining there, it really sounds like it's a, a case of finding out as you go, which I mean is a great way of learning, but often an expensive way. The mentor route, obviously, that that makes a lot of sense if you're dealing with people who have been you know down that path before, done it all before, and then they can give guidance. I mean. For the average enthusiast sitting at home with a free copy of Fusion 360, drawing something up that they're going to send to a, a little CNC jobber shop, any advice you could give on trying to come up with something that's uh, cost effective? The best thing I've gone with that seems to be the best way to an intern is ask them how they are going to make it. Mm-hmm. If you are given this, how are you going to make it? And if you can't answer that yourself, if you have no idea, then maybe question, should you even be designing it in the first place? Or should you at, like ask somebody who knows and learn more? Like they're like, great thing about today is YouTube has gobs of knowledge. You can learn basically anything you want to learn. And you probably shouldn't be sending stuff out if you don't know how, because you could end up spending way more than you should be spending just off basic, basic things yeah. that you can learn on YouTube. And it just makes you a more well-rounded person. Just in general, even if you don't make parts, you're not an engineer, you don't do this, just knowing how stuff is made in general allows you honestly to make better purchasing decisions when you're buying stuff yourself. So it's it's not lost on any reason. It's just a good thing to have. So that would be what I would recommend to go on YouTube and actually figure it out or ask a buddy who actually does it. Like I, if you're into cars, it can't be that hard to find somebody who's A, an engineer or B, a mechanic or see somebody who runs some sort of CNC machine. And that would be like, if you're going to make a machine part, show somebody who runs a CNC machine and see the reaction they give you. Because even if you're an engineer and you're like, this is manufacturable, they're still going to hate you because it's still going to be hard for them to do. So like, because they want, like their job is to machine something and they want it to be as easy as possible. Of course. Where your job is, you want to design something where it's still easy to make, but still hits all the design targets you need. Yeah. So it's kind of like somewhat fighting against each other. So if you're designing something for yourself, for your project car, talk to a machinist and be like, hey, what's the cheapest way I can get this thing for what I'm trying to do? And they're going to be the biggest help for you because especially because you might maybe they'll even make it for you. Making contacts, you could save money doing it that way and they might just make it for you part like on their free time. So it definitely doesn't hurt going that route. And that's the best route to go because with CAD software now being so achievable to the in-person, especially with Fusion 360. You shouldn't just, just because that's cheap and you can make parts, don't stop there. Keep going. Yeah. You don't like, like I know a lot of people think that's what engineers do, but in reality, like very little of engineering is like really designing part, like in general for like that kind of stuff. Like that's a small sector of engineering. Yeah. So you don't have to be an engineer to do that by any means, but you need to know what you're doing. I think uh, your point about 
talking to a machinist for for those components. I mean that that's obviously makes a lot of sense. We, we went through this uh, a couple of years back with one of our in-house projects, and I think the component was was relatively simple: it was a, a brake caliper adapter bracket and. Um, one of my guys drew that up in, in Fusion, and, and it, it wasn't too complex. And uh, the local CNC shop here that we deal with a bit sort of showed it to him, and he's like, well, yeah, I, I can make it, but that's actually going to require a fixture to hold it so it can be machined. Uh, if you'd make these two changes here and do it like this instead, it's, it's going to be, like, I don't know, a third of the cost because you didn't have to make the, the fixture to hold it. So, you know, just that simple. Mm-hmm. And I, I think... A lot of the CNC machinists out there, I mean, I imagine there's some some grumpy old old men in the industry as well, but a lot of them, you know, if you're an enthusiast and you you, you sort of turn up with a smile and an open mind and you're, you're hungry for information, they're actually usually more than happy to, to sort of provide some some guidance as well, maybe as long as they're not completely oh, yeah. strung out busy. Oh, yeah, it's the same as welders, especially like if you're, because this is my reference of being an engineer and working in a place that also does manufacturing. I'll tell you the people who actually manufacture the stuff notoriously hate engineers as because engineers make stuff that makes it their job harder. <laughs> so the best thing you can do, because you don't know how, like you don't know how to do their job better than them. So that's like a lot of people think engineers think they know everything and some do come off that way. But if you're more humble about it and you come out to them and be like, Hey, this is what I'm looking to do. Is there anything that would make your job easier when I'm doing it? These are the constraints I have to hit. Well, a, Make them like you. Mm. It'll make your job easier because they'll be able to. They'll be willing to help you out in the future when, say, you need something rushed, because you're willing to help them out. So, like, it's just good all the way around, and it's good for the company because you're making better parts because it's more efficient. So, there's no downside to doing that. Yeah, absolutely. That like I did that when I worked at CNR, and I did that at AMS, and made really good friends with all the like welding guys and manufacturing guys because of that, and it does help out exponentially and it makes you a better engineer there's no downside no always beneficial to keep the rest of the team uh, on on side i think all right paul we we'll move towards wrapping this up i do want to be respectful of your time here so we have the same three questions we ask all of our guests at the end and the first of those is what's next for you in the future so keep it somewhat brief but i've Moved into aerospace, doing some other things, still doing aerodynamic work, but in aerospace, and then basically still helping out Varus on the aero side of things until, and I'm going to get their next engineer who I know up to speed with doing external stuff and slowly start teaching him kind of what I know and moving him more into that role. And then I'll still keep doing like the bigger time attack stuff and stuff like that for a little while. So that's. That's the big thing for me in the future is aerospace. Aerospace. Okay. I guess like leading on from that, looking into the future, the career path just goes better than you could have possibly hoped for. What's the holy grail? What's the pinnacle for you? Um, Ideally, I would like to be really considered a specialist in the field. Um, I don't really want to move up into like necessarily management or anything like that. I don't care about managing people. I'd rather just be a technical specialist in the field feel getting to a point where i feel like i could even call myself a specialist like they there are people who there are job titles where you are a specialist but it would be cool to actually get to the point where you actually feel you're a specialist and not like kind of 
don't know. There's there's points where sometimes you're like, man, I did get an engineering degree, but I don't really feel like I'm an engineer kind of thing. So like get to a point where you actually feel like you're a specialist. Moving on, next question. Given your career path to date, is there any advice that you'd give to one of our listeners to help fast track where you've got to or maybe avoid any pitfalls that you've come across? I'd have a few. One big one is don't give up. A lot of people get very disheartened if like, say you're in engineering school, like say you want to do this, you want to be an aerodynamicist and you're in engineering school and you fail a class. Who cares? Take it again. Like, don't give up. Don't, don't quit school because you didn't, you didn't get the outcome you wanted one time. That's, that's silly. There are a lot of smart engineers who don't fail any classes, but very, very rarely have I talked to an engineer in the field who didn't have to take a class more than once. Right. Okay. And usually people who graduate from engineering, it's because they just didn't give up. It's not because they're smarter or anything like that. There are some people who are smarter than others, but every average person could get an engineering degree and get into the field they want as long as you're willing to not give up. And that's the biggest thing that I would say. I think that not giving up or stickability, I guess, is another way of referring to it. I mean, I think that goes through through everything in life, though. Um, yeah. You're not going to achieve much if you give up at the first sign of difficulty. Yeah. You, know, you, you really have to stick with just about anything worthy of, of doing uh, in order to achieve results. It's just that simple. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I would say is be humble. Uh, be willing to learn from people that you don't, like you don't know, like you can learn something from almost anyone. So don't act like you are smarter or the world's smartest person. Take everything with the type of mentality that you can take something positive out of this and learn. Um, the biggest part as an engineer, obviously, we talked about earlier on the manufacturing side. Talk to people who are actually making the parts. Talk to all these types of people. Talk to mechanics. Talk to people putting the parts on the car. You can learn a lot about designing Mm. and being a better engineer by talking to other people who aren't engineers. And that is, that's a very big one. Yeah, I, I think it's very easy for people to to come out of uh, uh, a university and, and think that they know everything. And um, my, my sort of stance on that is you never stop learning. And that's one of the reasons why I, I love this field. To sort of switch that around to, to my particular industry of engine tuning, you know, I saw this time and time again, and, and probably to start with, I was guilty of it myself. You know, the tuning industry is so secretive and so shrouded in, in mystery that no one wants to talk to any other tuner. And you try and you know, keep it all your, to yourself and, and think you know everything. And, and as I got through it, I, I realized you know, no one knows everything. There's always more to learn. And by being open, you know, I had a reasonably wide circle of, of tuners both here in New Zealand as well as internationally. And you know, if I struck something I hadn't seen before, you could bring up one of these people who knew dealt with that particular platform and say, hey, I'm seeing this, any advice? And you know, you'd quickly get to the bottom of it. And, and that worked the other way as well. I'd have people talking to me, you know, just understand that there's always someone who knows more than you. It, it's, it's no one ever knows everything. A hundred percent. That's, that's a big one. And then the last one I would say is if like you specifically want to do aerodynamics, um, and this would just be my opinion. If you just want to do aerodynamics and you're doing, you're going through school, you will fast track your career by just getting a master's degree right after you get your bachelor's. Okay. I don't think you learn anymore. Like you do learn a little bit more. I don't think it makes you a better engineer, but it will fast track you getting your foot in the door. Like if you want to get into formula one or something like that and do aerodynamics, 
you need to at least have a master's. And I'll say it's a lot easier to go to school right after you got your bachelor's to get a master's than it is to wait 10 years and go back to school. Yeah, solid advice. That would be my recommendation if you're on that specific path. Okay. All right, last question for today, Paul. If people want to follow your journey, see what you're up to, where are they best to do that? So I really only post on social media on uh, Instagram. My Instagram is P, I think it's P Lucas. So P-L-U-C-A-S with two underscores after it because apparently there's other P Lucases. Um, believe. And you'll have to ask to follow me because I keep it private. Um, otherwise, you can follow Ferris's stuff on all of their social media. Cool. Uh, we'll drop a, a link in the show notes as well so people know exactly how many underscores to put in there and make it nice and easy for them. <laughs> All right, Paul, thanks for, for your time today. It's been really interesting to get that insight particularly and uh, I was really interested to hear about the comparison between an aftermarket aerodynamics company like Verus versus uh, a heavyweight like Porsche. So really interesting to get that insight. <laughs> uh, thanks again for your time and we wish you all the best for your future. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Paul, we'd love it if you could leave us a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt free of charge anywhere in the world. Also, this is a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to Kawi Z from the United States who has said I've listened to every podcast episode multiple times on my third round currently. I learn something new every time. The pod and classes and webinars are the best. HPA make great content definitely recommended. Well thanks for the kind words there and if you can get in touch with us with your t-shirt size and shipping details we'll fire a fresh tea straight out to you. All right, that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.